word of Christ to us this morning are there in verse 14. Show me your face. And those words are Christ to our church, Christ's words to our church, and to every single one of us. And if it's all seeming a little bit strange, a little bit kind of poetic and Eastern and esoteric, and how's he going to get that uh, this to apply to me, I want to try and show you the steps of reasoning by which we understand how this applies, and then to try to understand its huge force. And if there's anyone who, like I think people quite rightly do, thinking, what difference will this make um, tomorrow morning? I think these four words, understood properly by a believer, have as much potential as almost anything else in helping us get out of bed five minutes earlier and read a bit of scripture and pray before we do whatever else we would have done day by day. And they provide an entirely new twist on the motivation for even a short time of personal prayer. All right, now I'm going to go into explanation mode about Song Songs. Uh, to try to show why those four words, show me your face, are from Christ to you as a Christian believer. If you're not yet a believer, this will give you a kind of foretaste. It draws you into a place where you can start to imagine what it would be to be a Christian believer. And if you're someone who's sort of vaguely coming to church, not yet a believer, and you're thinking that, that, that Christianity is a set of good moral principles and a kind of abstract statement of a higher power, what you're going to discover it is, is that it is intensely personal. So the Song of Songs is a collection of love songs. And largely speaking, there is a man who speaks to a woman, and then there's a chorus. It is exquisite and beautiful. And it is undoubtedly in the Bible, in order to show to us that human romance and sexuality and eroticism and marriage are good things given to us by God. Very important. That's, that's, if you like, the base level meaning of the Song of Songs. I'm going to skip over it a bit, but I, I strongly believe it. It's just not the main thing I'm dealing with this morning. The question is, does it mean anything more than that? And I want to give you several reasons for us understanding that the Song of Songs also functions as a set of beautiful, symbolic pictures, dynamic pictures, because this is a dynamic, unfolding relationship, dynamic pictures of the relationship to Christ and his people and Christ to his individual people. Okay, so let me try and rattle through some of these reasons to try to convince you of that. The first reason would be is that the Bible uses different pictures for our relationship with God, and some of the most important ones are in family relationships. So, father, child. We pray to God as our father. We see ourselves as children. We've already had that in one of the prayers this morning. It also uses the family relationship of brothers and sisters. And again, again, in the New Testament, we're described as being in a family if we're part of a church. We describe each other, each other perhaps as brothers and sisters. Also in the Bible, from pretty well the beginning right to the end, a third crucial kind of human family relationship is seen as a picture and metaphor of God's relationship to his people. And it's the relationship of a husband to a wife, a bridegroom to a bride. Sometimes it's, it's, it's used to show the devastating effects of God's people being disloyal to him and wandering off and worshipping other things or neglecting him. In which case, that behavior 
is spoken of as being like unfaithfulness to a marriage, as being like adultery. And you can see it again and again in the great prophets. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel make a huge amount of this. It's the entire, really the entire metaphor of the book of Hosea, for example. This is picked up again in the New Testament. So in uh, James chapter 4, people are wandering off course and behaving badly, and he says, you're, you're like a bunch of adulteresses. He's drawing on this metaphor, the picture of God's relationship to his people as being uh, like um, a man to a woman, a husband to a wife, a bridegroom to a bride. It's there pervasively through the Old Testament. I could, I, I could spend an hour going through the references with you, and I wouldn't have exhausted them all. And there's a little bit more in the book about this. So it's there right from the beginning and right to the end. So just to give one example, when the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes and he starts referring to himself as the bridegroom, he doesn't footnote it heavily. They know what he means. In the, in the reading we have from Isaiah chapter 62, it's about the restoration of Israel as, as a people who are like, what? They're like a bride for the bridegroom, which is God himself. We know, too, that the whole of the Old Testament, in one way or other, points to Jesus, and we would expect it to be doing that. Then when you come to the book of the Song of Songs itself, again and again, the way the woman is described is used in slightly strange and exotic metaphors from the land of Israel. Some of them, you might think, are not terribly flattering. You know, the, uh, your teeth are like um, a flock of sheep uh, type thing. Uh, your neck is like the Tower of Siloam, and, uh, or whatever it is, the, the Tower of David, various things like that. Uh, not the sort of chat-up lines that work terribly well, even in a kind of acute social of some kind. Um, so, so on the whole, best avoided. But what they're drawing on is this idea of the land as being like the bride, and that was there in Isaiah 62 that we looked at as well. There's a further clue in the Old Testament. In uh, Song of Songs, you see Solomon getting married as a kind of uh, picture um, a kind of way of uh, talking about the marriage of the, uh, the man and the woman in the Song of Songs, you, you, you see that uh, picture, you, you see it being pictured as being like Solomon. Uh, to, to shortcut it, it's kind of um, every man is a prince and every woman is a princess on their wedding day type sort of thing. The other place where you get that in the Old Testament is Psalm 45, where the same metaphor is used. And then in the New Testament, we see Psalm 45 being cited and applied to Jesus. Another bit of reasoning lies in the actual title of the Song of Songs. You see, it's Song of Songs. In the Old Testament, that um, particular grammatical structure is used for something which is the best, the superlative. So God is described as um, the king of kings. That means he's the greatest king, the holy of holies, the most holy place. You could trace this particular grammatical construction, and every single time, that is what it means, the greatest thing. So it's claiming to be the greatest song ever written. If it is just about the relationship between men and women in individual marriage, and not about God's love for his people. How can it be the greatest song? Because the greatest thing is God's love for his people. Far greater than human marriage. We know that human marriage is kind of metaphor for that. Furthermore, the, the more you get into the Song of Songs, the more the, the kind of eroticism and the romanticism and the intensity and the appreciation, you, you find it's written up, it becomes hyperbolic. And the claims that are made far exceed any kind of human relationship that has ever been. 
What's happening? Is this just kind of a bit idealized? Or is it pointing to something greater which there is there in the symbolism? Now, with all of these reasons, and I think I have one or two more in the, uh, one of the early chapters in the book, with all of these reasons, it feels to me that we are on entirely secure ground in seeing the Song of Songs as a picture of Christ's relationship to the church, the church that he came and died for, the church who will meet him in the wedding feast of the Lamb when he returns in that amazing picture from the end of the book of Revelation. And not just of Christ's relationship with the church collectively, as one of your writers have pointed out, I think very helpfully, what applies to the ocean here applies to a drop of water. What applies to a large fire applies to individual tongues of fire. And that's important because the dynamism of the song is about an individual dynamism, uh, the, the dramatic relationship between the man and the woman. It's harder in many ways to apply that uh, to a church, although churches do have um, kind of collective personalities in that sense. But actually, it's very easy or much easier to see how it applies to Christ and to me and to you as well. And I've dived into uh, chapter two. We could have looked at all sorts of bits, but uh, I think this is my favorite bit. So that's why I'm looking at it this morning. And what, what, what I want to uh, show you is that it, it gives us um, four different aspects of Christ's love for us, building up to that climactic one in verse 14, show me your face, all in terms of spring coming. So this is a really terrible time of year to be doing it because the clocks have just changed and we're all wishing that they hadn't. And we know it's a long time till spring, but that in itself does something that the Song of Songs often does, which is to evoke in us a sense of desire for something we don't yet have. And what we see here is the Son of God coming in the springtime of the soul and drawing close to our souls too. First of all, we see his energetic approach. And that's there uh, in verse 8 and beginning of verse 9. Now, I was warned that uh, in coming in here, the uh, atmosphere is a little bit deadening, and it's important to try to uh, be as lively as possible. And uh, Peter was briefing me about his uh, now famous enactment of the life cycle of the swift. <laughs> yes, yeah, some, some of you obviously enjoyed that. Did anyone video it? I'd love to be able to show it to our fraternal if you did. Anyway, see me afterwards, and I'll buy that video off you. Um, I was, I've been very tempted this morning to uh, try to do something similar because in this passage we've got gazelles leaping over the mountains, we've got deer looking through lattice, we've got doves hiding in the cracks, we've got little foxes going through the vines. Um, but unfortunately I brought my wife with me and I've been banned from any kind of uh, life uh, cycle reenactment. So you're just going to have to have it verbally and maybe with some arm gestures. But the point is to think of a mountain deer or gazelle that is very short-footed and in a huge hurry, leaping down from the mountains to make the gap between him and her shorter. There's a dynamic movement towards us. The Lord Jesus Christ does not come to us reluctantly. He didn't have to have his arm twisted in order to come as our incarnate saviour. When he comes to us, when we're first uh, converted, we first start to understand about him. This, this is not something that he has to be uh, forced into. There is a divine 
longing and energy that brings him to us. This is Jesus coming to you with eagerness. The second picture um, is, is an interesting one because in the second half of verse 9, we see that the stag has stopped moving and he's outside the house and he's looking in through the window. And you, this is all very, very bizarre, isn't it? Apparently, and I remember from one commentator who I think lives in North America that there's a, that he, 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 and, and is in rural areas, deer will come and look in through the kitchen window. So apparently it does really happen. But, but what, is, what, what is the picture here? What we see here is the longing eyes of Christ as he looks into our souls. There's that divine energy which draws him to shorten the gap between us and him. And then there is a longing as he looks into our souls. And you immediately start thinking, as I would, well, why on earth would he want to look into my soul? There's so much that's rubbishy there. It's like one of those parts of the garden that you hope no one can see that's uh, just a complete tip or a, a room in the house that's just, just sort of full of stuff. The one bit that hasn't been renovated properly. Why would he be wanting to peer through the window into my soul? I found one of two commentators helpful on this. And I think we have to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ is not stupid. He doesn't come to us and look in expecting that he will find there a perfect track record of righteousness and holiness and goodness and love and faith from uh, beginning, the beginning of our lives till now. What is it that draws him, though? Actually, what draws him is a straightforward, humble honesty about our own brokenness and failure. What draws him is people who are broken, and they're broken not just by other people, that includes that, but they're broken by themselves, and they just know that they need a saviour because they cannot save themselves. He looks in, and when he sees someone who is in a mess and admits they're in a mess and is looking for help, his eyes love to see that. Is that you this morning? And are you thinking because of the things that you've got wrong, that you're now so bitterly ashamed of, you, you don't want him looking in? He wants to look in because he wants to see your broken, humble openness about what you've got wrong and your readiness for him to make a change. Then we hear the, the enticing invitation of Christ. Verse 10, my beloved spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come with me. It's almost like a pair of deers who are, deer who, who are going to kind of go on a great run together, leaping uh, through the emerging spring. You're trying to bring us out into somewhere that's better and to realize that in the gospel there is springtime for the soul, not winter. The winter's passed, the rains are over and gone, there are flowers, there's, there's singing, the doves are cooing, we're starting to get early fruit. The vines are coming, so we know there's going to be grapes and even wine. Come with me, he says. The Lord Jesus Christ is continually coming to us and inviting us to walk and run more closely in step with him. I found it very helpful to step back for a minute and, uh, again, refer to an older writer, Richard Sibbs, who has written very intelligently on how we apply the Song of Songs to a relationship with us and Christ. And, he suggests that this whole business of movement, of coming near and us going with him, in a sense we see it with his first coming for the whole of humanity. 
the whole world. He comes into our world. That's his energetic movement towards us. We will see it again when he finally comes. We see it at the beginning of our Christian life. And then Sib suggests, I think very helpfully, that the Christian life is a kind of sequence and pattern of intermediate comings, intermediate movements towards us. This is the felt dynamic of the relationship with Christ for the individual believer. And so it is right to see this as the Lord Jesus Christ coming to us after a period of spiritual winter in our souls, seeing the brokenness there, but we feel his eagerness and we respond by saying, yes, I will go with you again. And let the energy of your love lift me into a place of springtime for my soul. And perhaps that's where you're at this morning and perhaps that's what you need his, his words to say to you. Well, then the picture changes again, and she is now seen as a dove, and I think he is also seen as a dove. I think dear-dove relationships are not something that, uh, I think it's slightly too complicated for Scripture, uh, rightly so. This is now one dove speaking to another, and beautifully so, verse 14. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountains. This just imagines a bird in a place where it takes shelter because it thinks it's safe, but actually it's out of sight as well. And so the, the, the male dove that's wanting to come and to uh, mate with the female dove can't, can't see it. Its place of safety takes it out of sight. I wonder how much we do that. We carve out our own particular ways of trying to make ourselves feel safe in a world that feels chaotic and difficult. But actually in doing so, by taking safety in things that the world would take safety in, we can find ourselves actually cutting ourselves off from the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly what he says here is an invitation for a kind of unveiling. And how moving this is in this era where we've had face masks on uh, so much of the time, it's really gathered a whole new meaning. My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, show me your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet. And your face is lovely. There's a great tradition in Christian spirituality of seeking the face of God. There are several psalms which refer to this. My heart says, seek your face. Your face, O Lord, I will seek. The idea of seeking the face of God has just been a staple, of, uh, an essential uh, part of mainstream Christian spirituality. There's a hymn that uh, sums it up. Show me your face, one transient gleam of loveliness divine, and I will, sell, I will never think or dream of other love save thine. All lesser light will darken quite, all lesser glories wane. The beautiful of earth will scarce seem beautiful again. That pleading to see the face of God. Remember Moses asking to see the face of God. Remember the glory of God being revealed in the face of Jesus Christ, the sense that the face of Jesus Christ is the most beautiful thing in the universe. And then when we realize the glory of God, the grace and the love and the tender affection and the safety that we find there, something in the heart of the Christian believer just wants to cry out, oh, show me your face, Lord. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely, Lord Jesus. That's an amazing and wonderful and natural place.
for the Christian believer to be. But you know what? It's not us speaking here. Look at it. It's him. Don't think of that sense of longing to see someone who you've not seen. Just that desire to hear their voice in person and not through a mask or a screen or a speaker. It's a lovely voice and a lovely face and you just love that person so much. Think about your feelings towards Jesus like that. Had a barren time in your soul. But again, realize these are his words, not yours. It is an immensely powerful thing to realize that us turning towards the Lord in love, in openness, I think that's what I mean the uncovering of the face represents, an, an openness and a focus and a desire and a readiness for him. And we speak to him, even if it's faltering, even if it's a half sentence or a scattered phrase from a half-remembered prayer, that that is something which is sweet and lovely and beautiful for him. His word to us is, show me your face, stop masking it. Let me hear your voice, stop being on mute. And the reason is that to him, our voices are sweet, and our faces are lovely. To bring it down to earth, whether we do get up and turn to him in prayer, read a bit of scripture, place ourselves in his hands for the day, say thank you for being our Lord and Savior, and even if we do just do that in three minutes tomorrow morning, actually the main point of that is not about what it does to you. It is possible to become hyper-consumerist about all things in the spiritual life, including whether you even have just a short, quiet time or not. Actually, the main point of turning towards him like that is simply that he loves it. In other words, Jesus really likes it when I turn up for a quiet time, and you as well. It pleases him. In the book, I tried to imagine it this way in terms of a little dialogue. Oh, gosh, it's 7.30 already. I'm late, too late for a quiet time, I suppose. The Lord will understand. Show me your face. But I'm too busy. Show me your face. But you've got lots of other disciples. Why can't you pick on one whose alarm clock went off on time? Show me your face. But I haven't had time to shave or... Brackets, make myself up, which way you go. Lots of people are not going to want to see my face at this rate. Show me your face. But I, I, my face just isn't worth seeing. Show me your face. Lord, I don't, even like my, I don't even like my face very much, let alone what's behind it. And you have much st hand, higher standards than me. Show me your face. For your face is lovely. No, it's not. It's lopsided and blotchy, and I've got some spots today. Show me your face your face is lovely. You aren't going to give up on me, are you, Lord? Show me your face, for your face is lovely. Okay, I think you've got my attention now, but what can I say? 
Let me hear your voice. Well, I think that's happening, isn't it? I can't imagine you're enjoying it particularly, though. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet. But I have a sore throat, and seriously, all I'm doing is moaning. Your voice is sweet. Okay, Lord, you win. This isn't about me, right? This is about you. You just want me. Well, I do love you, and your face is beautiful to me too, and your voice is lovelier than any other voice. Thank you. When we were working through the Song of Songs at our church, I wanted to try and find some way of releasing some creative talents in the church and recognising the creativity that's in the song itself. So we kind of bounce, tried to bounce off it. And we had what I rather portentously call the creative responses to the Song of Songs evening instead of an evening service. And it was a load of fun. We did some fun things. We had some uh, splendid musical items. Um, there were some choral pieces that were very highbrow and absolutely beautifully performed and, and really stunning. People wrote their own songs and poems. There was one bloke in the church. He wrote his own song. I'd never known that he was a kind of Elton John wannabe. I mean, it was just incredible. Um, and then uh, we had some Song of Songs themed food and drink in the interval. We had some people reading some of the Hebrew of the Song of Songs, as I say, some poems and things. And we also had people who tried to respond um, artistically with... Uh, largely with paints, I think. I don't think we had any sculptures, and the people had done different kinds of painting. Well, my contribution was self-portrait. I was tempted to bring it or show it, but again, with, with family present, I didn't want to embarrass them. Um, let's put it this way. I didn't look at my happiest, and uh, I made no attempt to uh, hide the kind of... Uh, uh, depressiveness and anxiety and bleakness that I often feel and that seems to me is often represented in my face. And it, the, the thing is, is fairly bleak and black. But it was my contribution because I wanted to say that even me in my messed upness and my brokenness, partly self-inflicted, partly inflicted by others, in all of that, I understood Christ still to be wanting to see my face and for me to turn towards him. And to try to take seriously that astonishing phrase, your face is lovely. Now someone will be saying, well, how does that work then? I think it's important to understand it this way, that he loves it when broken people turn themselves towards him in in openness. That's one thing he loves. He loves it when he sees the humility to let him be Lord and Saviour. He loves that. As he looks into our lives, as they've uh, changed and been transformed, he sees aspects of us that are different because they're more like him, and he loves that. With our sin, he is aware, because he's done it himself, that he's covered us over with his own perfect robes of righteousness, and so we are justified and have a standing in his sight. He loves it too because he anticipates the full beauty that will be ours when he returns and we will be part of a church that, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, is without spot or wrinkle or any kind of imperfection. There's an older writer who I love who has tried to explore it in this way. This is from a Spanish mystic called John of the Cross. And what he tries to explore in this passage is the relationship between Christ being beautiful 
and us being beautiful because we're in Christ, and Christ enjoying seeing his beauty in us, and then we see his beauty in him enjoying us. I'll read it. It kind of flows over you and has an effect. If you try and follow the logic properly, it would be quite hard without just stopping and pausing all the time. Let me be so transformed in thy beauty, that being alike in beauty, we may see ourselves both in thy beauty, having thy beauty, so that one beholding the other, each may see his own beauty in the other, the beauty of both being thine only and mine absorbed in it. And thus I shall see thee in thy beauty and myself in thy beauty, and thou shalt see me in thy beauty, and I shall see myself in thee in thy beauty, and thou thyself in me in thy beauty. So shall I seem to be thyself in thy beauty, and thou myself in thy beauty. My beauty shall be thine, thine shall be mine, and I shall be thou in it, and thou myself in thine own beauty, for thy beauty will be my beauty. And so we shall see each the other in thy beauty. I get really excited about this. I think it is so moving and so helpful for us. But do you know the Lord Jesus is so excited because the whole point of the uh, personal dynamic in the Song of Songs is to portray a woman who gets excited about a man and a man who gets excited about a woman. There is this great tradition in Christian spirituality of writers who've picked this up and tried to get our hearts to soar with it. John Owen, who was, um, who was at Christ Church and a mighty English theologian in the 17th century, writes about this. And he writes about Christ and us with this image of the bridegroom and the bride. Thoughts of communion with the saints were the joy of his heart from eternity. His soul rejoiced in the thoughts of that pleasure and delight that he would take in them. Christ delights exceedingly in his saints. A person's wedding day is the most unmixed delight that many people experience. The delight of the bridegroom in the day of his marriage is the height of what an expression of delight can rise to. In other words, for many people, it's one of the, one of the great things. Christ has this response in himself because of the relationship he takes us into. His heart is glad in us. And then I think Owen paused. And he wanted to find a way of raising his readers higher. Perhaps imagining them thinking of their own unloveliness in their own eyes. Perhaps imagining of them thinking of their sin and how they don't want to turn up for a quiet time for fear that they will just suffer a sense of utter self-condemnation or even worse, Christ-condemnation in doing so. Anticipating all our objections to this. And then he says, And every day whilst we live is Christ's wedding day. It's that great for him. Show me your face. Christ says, 
Bring your first objection. Show me your face, Christ says. Bring your second objection. Show me your face, Christ says. Bring your next objection. He will always reply the same way. Show me your face. Show me your face tomorrow morning, even if it's just for three minutes, even if you're brushing your teeth at the same time. Show me your face. Let me hear your voice again, even if it's just as you're walking to a lecture. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Let's pray together. We pray, O oh Lord Jesus, that you would help us to feel and sense the throb and energy of your passion for us and indeed your delight in us in the gospel. Grant us, Lord, simply to respond to show you our faces and to let you hear our voices for your name's sake.